I don't like either side of this argument. I think it gets really emotional and um, it doesn't really talk about the issue. So the question that we're talking about today is, uh, it's been called limited atonement. I absolutely despise that phrasing. Um, and so we're going to call it definite, what I call it on there? Definite redemption. There you go. Definite redemption. Yes, yeah, better, isn't it? Positive terms. So let's do a little recap and then we will dig in to that. Let me pray first. Father in heaven, um, Thank you for being here in this room. Thank you for bringing uh, these women in here. And I pray that you would teach and speak to each one of them and tell them uh, what they need to hear from these rich and beautiful passages that we're going to read. And Father, I pray that you would uh, give us clarity uh, as we seek to understand really the most important thing of all, what you've done for us through Jesus. And I pray all these things in his name. Amen. Okay, let's do just a little bit of review, like always, because repetition is the mother of learning. So, we're talking about this whole plan, right? God's sovereignty. The primary message is that God has a plan, right? God, God has a plan. And he is executing his plan. Um, God has a plan, and Stacy has my markers. But she is at the doctor today. I told her to hide them. Let me see if I can figure out where she is. Nope, nothing there. Nothing there. So God has a plan. He is not just kind of up in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering, well, I wonder what these rascals are going to do next. He is working uh, throughout history to do uh, two amazing things to bring us into his presence. Uh, so that he can love us forever. That's, that's really the, one of the main purposes of creation, to, to create us in such a way that he could love us, that he could reveal the depths of his love to us, and that he could bring us into his fellowship where he will love us forever and ever. It's an amazing plan. I like that plan. Um, the second thing that God's plan is doing is it is... Uh, revealing his grace, revealing the depth of his mercy uh, in the coming ages. And, and that's in Galatians chapter 2. Um, and it's an interesting passage because you want to go, well, who is he revealing it to? I don't know. Maybe the angels. Maybe he's going to create another planet of beings uh, in future ages. And he's going to say, see how much I love them. Let me show you another facet of my personality. I don't know. We have no idea. But... He is using us and this thing that we call world history to reveal uh, the depths of his mercy, Paul tells us. And so that's, that's what this plan is about. And uh, we said the plan involves our salvation, and, and we, need to, we want to really focus in on that. And so the first thing we looked at was our uh, radical corruption, right? which is that we are all turned away from God. We're not seeking God. Again, there's going to be questions you have during this topic, and that's fine, today's topic. But the answers are all found here. Okay, um, God is not, there is nobody out there, you know, coming up to God saying, please, can I have a little bit of grace? And not getting it. Nobody's doing that. Nobody is coming up saying, can I just have crumbs from the table? And he's going, no, you're not my elect. 
stomping on them. Like that's that's the opposite of everything the Bible teaches, right? Um, the Lord is is giving grace to absolutely everybody who uh, who comes after Him. I mean, the reason why we come after Him is because of His grace. And if it wasn't for His grace coming to us first, we would have never sought Him out. Um, that do the now, do the neighbor, kids in that neighborhood illustration with y'all last time? Robbing the bank. Yes. Perfect. We wouldn't let our kids rob the bank, right? Other kids in the neighborhood want to rob a bank? They shouldn't do that. Can't stop them. Sad thing is, for those of you who have small children, you can't stop your own kids either. But you can for a little while, while they're small. All right. A side story I've told... Will and I were actually having a pretty important conversation, and I ended it last weekend by saying, um, no matter how stupid of a decision you make, I'll love you anyway. So that's kind of what we do, right? That's painful. All right, so the the context of our salvation is radical corruption. The first act of our salvation is God's eternal grace, our eternal love. That he loves us before time, he loves us after time, he's loved us since before we were ever born. Uh, he will continue loving us forever and ever. His love is the reason why we do anything good. He loved us first. The reason we love God is he loved us first. He took care of our sin first. He, he called us, he elected us. Those are the kind of terms that the Bible uses. And today, we are going to talk about definite atonement, definite redemption. Now, ah, shoot, we got to have a, do we need a vowel here or do we need a, uh, I'm trying to come up with a word. I really don't have a word in mind that we're coming up with. I'm a little worried about not having a vowel. So, but we're going, we'll go with definite redemption because that's what I put on your sheets. And we'll worry about that at the end of the t- term. Okay. What I mean by definite redemption is this. Jesus' death did something. Jesus' death accomplished the purpose he set out to accomplish. His, uh, well, his final words are into your hand. I commend my spirit. But the final words before that were, it's finished. I've done it. Everything you've asked me to do, his death did something. And that is what we are going uh, to fight for to our dying breath. His death did something. Now, the way this uh, debate has been couched is uh, who did Jesus die for? Did Jesus die for everybody or did he only die for his people? Um, I reject that question. And I instead give you the question, what did Jesus' death accomplish? Did it make salvation possible or did it save his people? Did it make reconciliation possible or did it reconcile his people to God? Did it perfect and save his people or did, he, or did it open the door for perfection and salvation if they decided to walk through it? And I believe what the Bible teaches Obviously, you can tell by the way I've asked the questions, is that God, Jesus' death saved us, earned our pardon, made us righteous, perfected us once and for all, according to Hebrews, and that's what I'm going uh, to try to get through today. So, limited atonement, the reason I don't like it is that I feel like it's a negative term, you know, it's limited, your atonement's limited, ah! and uh, that's what they always say, they always say, yeah! Right at the end of it, it's really important that you get that. Um, and then people who get drawn into the debate want to go, well, no, your atonement's limited because you don't think Jesus fully saved us. And so, you know, and I'm just like, let's, let's not. Let's just not have that conversation. And it's a very emotional conversation, right? You get into people. And, and have any of y'all, like, known a really annoying young Calvinist? I mean, Angela, you grew up in a church filled with them. Um, yeah, they're not very fun people to be around, are they? No. And they're always like, and, you know, I get it. I was this guy. I was this guy. I went around Vanderbilt for a year, 
telling people they didn't understand who Jesus died for. And I was so bad. I was such a bad person. But God blessed that. And all my friends are Presbyterian elders now, which is hilarious because they all hated me. Which is good, right? It shows that God is able to do good things with a bad person. And that's why I'm still in the ministry. So, so let's talk about, let's just kind of talk through these questions together. Um, all right, so the, um, the inseparable questions are, you know, for whom did Christ die? And uh, what did Christ's death accomplish? So the two answers, right, to for whom Christ died is the world without exception, right? Can you think of any Bible verses that would kind of lead you to think that? I'm sorry, so the rain's so loud I can't hear you. John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but give you have eternal life. Right. 1 John 2.2 2 is even more blatant. We're going to actually have to talk about that one. Right. Um, this is love, not that we love God, but God gave his son for us as a sacrifice for our sins, and not for us only, but for the whole world. Um, sure sounds like he died for the whole world. Uh or did Jesus die for the church and his people? Um, can you think of any Bible passages that would teach that? Yep, that's John 17. I'm praying not for the world, but for the people that you've given me. That's, good. that's, that's one. Uh, John 10. Uh, you know, you're my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. The reason why you don't believe is you're not my sheep. I lay down my life. This is the one the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, John 6, uh, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he gives to me would come to me, and I would give them eternal life. Uh, Ephesians 5, which we're going to talk all these are the secrets. is one of those secrets. It's kind of... The answers are all down here under questions number four, <laughs> heading number four. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Hebrew, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Um, and so then that, that brings to the second question. Um, what did Jesus's death accomplish? And throughout history, there have been three answers to that question. And I want to kind of go through those. And I'm going to try to be as fair as possible. And I do think this gets to an important ending. So we'll get there in a second. So the first answer to that question, what did Jesus' death accomplish? Is that Jesus' death made salvation possible for all, but did not secure the salvation for any. Okay? Possible for the world. Why do we say that? Why? We're saying that that because Jesus' death, the, the people who, who would say it this way are saying, Jesus died for everybody. And then your response would be, so is everybody going to be in heaven? No. So if everybody's not going to be in heaven, then Jesus' death only secured the possibility of salvation, but the possibility of salvation for all. And um, that's, that's understandable. I, that's, that's a possible answer. I don't think that's the biblical answer. I'm not very good at hiding my poker face. And, um, but that is, that is kind of that, the, the general, what we call the Arminian, the non-Calvinistic, the typical kind of American evangelical response, that Jesus made salvation possible for all. Um, why, why would that answer bug me so badly? What is, what is fundamentally flawed with that answer? I 
who does that place the burden of salvation upon? Right. It's saying that Jesus didn't do enough to actually save us. I'm the one who has to finish the work. And that leads people into a never-ending spiral of, well, have I finished it? And everything becomes, uh, becomes a work. And, and what I'm seeing right now, this is happening a lot because the last three years have been so awful and everybody's kind of exhausted. And so what I'm seeing is people talking about how they're not able to have faith or they're, they're they just can't have believe, right? They're losing their faith. And, and I, my, my response to them pastorally is, a, you don't understand the nature of faith, but B, you're just tired. You're just tired. And it's okay to be tired. And you need to rest. The answer to being tired is to rest, to eat well, and to not look for the next uh, controversy until you get over this trauma. So don't make your faith into the next controversy. We're not saved by drumming up enough faith to believe. The, the temptation for, for people who believe this is essentially this. Uh, Jesus died for all. So keeping the Ten Commandments is no longer necessary. He's, sa- he's, he's, re- he's saved us from that, forgiven us for all our sins, which is true. Um, not necessary, but still wise, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Um, Jesus' death you know, forgives us for all our sins, and he's replacing the Ten Commandments with one commandment. You know, he's, So he's, he's taking this super high uh, bar that we had to jump over that was 10, 10 commandments and he's made it into one commandment. And what's the one commandment? Yeah, believe. Well, believe, right? And so we're saved by believing. You're actually right. These people are wrong and you're correct, but we're going with this. Um, and so all we have to do now is believe. And that makes believing into something that's very hard that you have to have energy to and you wonder... But is my, is my faith pure enough? Do I, what if I have doubts? Does that mean I'm not saved anymore? And, um, and faith is not, it's, it, that's just the opposite. It, does that make sense of how problematic that is? I'm about to have this conversation with somebody this afternoon who feels like he's lost his faith. And he hasn't. He's just tired. And um, faith is not something you do. Faith is stopping from doing and letting someone else do it. Faith is not, you know, faith is, is when you stop jerking Jesus' hands off the steering wheel and you just let him drive. Faith is uh, just resting and trusting him to take care of you. It's not something you have to do, but it's hard for us to get that through our head because we're so works-oriented. And this is just humanity. It's not like something special about Tolsons or Americans or, you know, millennials or whatever. Humanity's always been so works-oriented that it just doesn't make sense to us to rest and let Jesus do it. Abraham had trouble with that. We have trouble with that. So that's why I don't like that answer. Possible for all means Jesus didn't actually save us. We have to add something. Um, the other, the next possible answer to you know who who did Jesus? What did Jesus' death accomplish? Is that it saved his elect? Saved his bride, saved his church, and that Jesus did everything necessary uh, to save his people, and uh, that salvation is perfect. Um, what what sounds wrong with that? Why would people be mad at this answer? It sounds exclusive, right? What's the possible um, kind of faith? This question I'm looking for, struggle that this would cause. Am I in the elect, right? And now people are really scared because it's like, well, I'm either in or out, and there's nothing I can do to get in or out. And so there's a real temptation, and that's that's been a, a Calvinistic boogaboo for at least 500 years, um, you know, because we teach it wrong. Uh, the, the purpose of, you know, we don't preach the, I don't preach the gospel and say, you know, if you're elect, come take communion. Um, now, there have been people who have done that. That's actually 
a historic kind of um, problem when people are like, you have to give signs that you're elect before you're allowed to come take communion because we don't want to give communion to an unbeliever. And uh, I, I think that's extra biblical. That's not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does the Apostle Paul say, if you're elect, repent and believe. The forgiveness, you know, the, the, the evangelistic call is repent and believe. Repent and you will be saved. Believe and you will be saved because we can, nobody's going to believe it's not elect because radical, radical corruption, right? But you can see why saying it this way, like that's why I say I don't like this debate at all. And no matter how you try to frame it, somebody's going to say, well, that question causes me a real problem with my faith. Yeah, that's why we don't talk about it. I think it's a bad point. I wish you had never asked. Uh, I mean, it really is kind of one of those issues that you wish had never been brought up. But it is. And so uh, I'm going to try to talk about it in as positive a way as possible. And by the time we're done, you're going to be carrying me out of here on your shoulders because of limited atonement. Now, um, there is a third answer um, that is actually very, very popular today. And that is, Jesus died to save everyone, without exception, period. Um, And that's basically just combining these two, right? Jesus' death actually did something. It's an objective truth, an objective fact. And he died for the world. And everybody is saved, therefore. And and this is... uh, there's, there's different kinds of liberalism. It's kind of a hard thing, a label to throw around. But liberal-ish seminaries that still claim to believe the Bible teach this. And what they're teaching is that, you know, hell's real. Uh, sin is awful. Now, there's some seminaries that don't believe in any of that, right? And they think that sin is, you know, sexism. And if we can just get sexism out of the church. I do think sin, sexism is sinful. I'm not trying to say it's not. But if we can get, you know, sexism out of the church and if we can get poverty out of the church, then those are the only bad thing. But churches, uh, seminaries that believe the Bible, but are also liberal-ish, want to say sin's real, hell is real, and Jesus died to save everybody from them, from sin and from hell. And evangelism is not me going to you and saying, repent and believe so that you will be saved. Evangelism is me coming to you and saying, repent and believe that you are saved. Stop living like somebody who's not saved. You are. Jesus died for you. Um, and, and you need to live like he died for you. You're ruining your life because you don't believe that. Um, that's very attractive, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I kind of like it. Um, I think it is taking the message that is, you know, aimed at, directed at the church and applying it to all. And ultimately, I don't think it's true. Uh, I think it's very um, suburban. You know, it's easy. It's an easy faith to preach to, uh, you know, good moral people. Um, it's not a very easy thing to preach to uh, people who've been the victims of evil people. Um, and it's just not true. The reason I don't believe it, even though I find it very attractive, make my job a lot easier. Uh, the reason I don't believe it is because Jesus very clearly says in three or four, five, six, seven, eight different places, you know, I, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. He would cast them out into the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, he clearly teaches that there is a division after the judgment, right? at the judgment between um, God's people and those who are not. Uh, And that's something he teaches quite often. He actually has one fairly graphic depiction of hell in the story of the rich man and Lazarus um, in Luke. So, uh, you know, I think, while I think this is a tempting belief, I don't think it it will hold what the Bible uh, teaches. By the way, um, just because we're in Tulsa, y'all know who Carlton Pearson is. Uh, he was a yeah, higher dimension pastor, huge church. Um, quote, unquote, went liberal right after we moved here. Right. Uh, his, his 
theology is actually more perceptive than most people get him credit for. Um, this is him. He thinks that everybody is saved in Jesus. He doesn't think that sin no longer exists and all that. He thinks everybody's uh, saved in Jesus. Just throwing that out there in case you were curious. Okay, so the answer is not, though, the answer that we're looking for is not just simply what answers do we like? What do we want the answers to be? The, um, the, the question is, what does the Bible teach, right? And there's many ways you can phrase these questions. Um, and whatever you want the answer to be, you can phrase it how you want it, right? And so if you want to argue for that Jesus saved his elect, you say things like, well, did Jesus pay for the sins of people who are being condemned? That's a hard question. Right. If Jesus died for everybody and people are going to hell, does that mean that Jesus paid for sins that are still being punished? And if they're being punished, does that make God unjust for punishing a sin that's already been paid for? I would say yes. Um. I would say that that would make God unjust because he has no right to pay for a sin, to punish someone for a sin, to demand that someone pay for a sin that's already been paid for. Now, again, um, you know, the, the, the typical answer that they give is, well, you can't force someone to receive a gift. And... Um, I still think that objectivity of the atonement deals with this question. I mean, if he did it, he did it. If he paid for our sins, if if the resurrection means what we think it means, that God Jesus paid for our sins completely, so there's no more payment accepted, then why are people still paying for their sins if he died for them? Uh, you know, is God just to condemn people whose sins are already paid for? Uh, is there more work that we must do to be saved, or is the work of Jesus enough? So those are all all questions that I think make this a, a hard answer to come up with. That makes sense. You know, this is the first time I've taught this. You can you're welcome to say this is not clear at all. Any questions before we jump into the answers? All right. So let's look at what the Bible teaches. So first I want to teach, I want to kind of talk you through four, well, four things that the Bible says Jesus' death accomplished, and then we're going to spend a little time on John 10 and Romans 8, and then we're going to look at two problematic passages, and I'll explain to you what all the world means, all of that in 23 minutes. Okay, so what did Jesus' death accomplish? Uh, Hebrews 9 Nine is very important for this. Nine and ten. It's the substitutionary sacrifice, right? So what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's going back through the work of the Old Testament and what would happen in the Old Testament. Every year, the high priest would, uh, on the Day of Atonement, would, would have a, a lamb come in or a goat come in, and he would lay his hands on the goats. And one would be taken way out into the wilderness uh, as a symbol that um, our sins have been completely removed from us. When he, when he lays his hands on them, he's putting his, our sin, the sin of the community, on the, the heads of these uh, goats. One is uh, then slaughtered for our sins. His blood is shed. The other one is, is, is taken way out into the wilderness where it can never find its way back. If the lamb finds its way back, then the person who took it out there gets fired. He didn't take it far enough. Um, and uh, as, as a very visual sign that our, um, our sins have been paid for and they're taken away. And he said what Jesus did was he was crucified outside the camp. Our sin was taken outside of the camp, and he paid for it once and for all. This is why it was important that he be a man, that he could suffer the, the sins that a man deserved to suffer. It's the reason why it was important for him to be a perfect man. He wasn't suffering for his own sins. It's the reason why it was important for this to be a, a, a trial. It was not just uh, an accidental death, but it was him actually being pronounced 
guilty, even though he was innocent. The, it's fascinating when you read the details, right? Pontius Pilate declares him innocent three times. There's, he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. And he crucifies him in the place of um, Barabbas, symbolic of him dying in our place. So that's that's what, you know, he is, he's dying the ultimate sacrifice for all. And Hebrews says he dies once for all. And this is important. It's very important. And we'll go ahead and read it now, even though it was, I'm supposed to save it for the next section. It's here. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. The sacrifice is, is done. Waiting from that time until all his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All of you uh, perfect, who struggle with perfectionism, I would have you memorize that text. You're not, it's not your job to perfect yourself. Jesus has already perfected you. Now, if Jesus perfected the people that he died for, why would any of them be punished? It, it really does get down to this question of the objectiveness of the atonement. Did Jesus accomplish that? If he accomplished it, then he must have only been for his people because only his people are going to spend eternity with him. And I can't give that up. I feel like I have to give that up. It's, it's tempting to say, well, but it, wouldn't it be kinder and nicer for Jesus to have died for everybody? But I can't give up this fact that Jesus' death did something. It, it perfected us for all time. Hebrews says, and if we're perfected for all time, if I'm still in danger of going to hell, I just don't have that, that truth uh, applicable to me. Um, second thing, uh, the, the, the uh, death of Christ accomplished. Romans uh, chapter 3 says it very beautifully. Romans 3.25 I'll start with 23 because that's the one everybody knows. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God's anger has been taken away. God, the wrath of Christ has extinguished God's anger. He is no longer angry at his people. Um, if that's true, then we have no, nothing to fear. And we're able to come to God. Um, we're able to come to God the way we come to our uh, a loving father. We, we enter boldly into the throne room of grace, which is something that y'all have heard your whole life and doesn't blow you away. But if you had grown up, terrified to anybody go, who goes beyond this huge um, curtain into the Holy of Holies will die immediately. And someone has told you, you can walk boldly into that room uh, because God's wrath has been t appeased. It's been taken away forever. Um, that's, if, if Jesus died for his people and made that a permanent truth, that's one thing. If he made it possible I'd be afraid of God. I'd be wondering, like, well, if I, am I doing it right? Have I, have, I, have I lost this? Have I made him mad at me again? Which is what most people think. I mean, most people think uh, when there's the best thing that could have happened to him would have been to have died right after they made their profession of faith, right? Because they've been sinning every day since. And they used to be right up here close to Jesus, but now they're so far away from him, he can't stand looking at them. That's just not true. Jesus has perfected you. God's anger is taken away. Um, the third thing Jesus' death accomplished is reconciliation between God and his people. 2 Corinthians 5.20, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We are reconciled to God. 
Uh, we are friends. Uh, he is not our enemy. We have nothing to fear when we come before him. Even his, uh, his fatherly discipline is loving and it is kind. And it's safer to fall into his hands than to anyone else's. And even when we're going through extremely dark, difficult days, um, we know it's not because God is mad at us, because Jesus has taken away that anger. I, don't, I wouldn't be able to live if, I don't know if I'd still be here. Like when I was going through my depression three years ago, and everything was so dark and just awful. And um, I mean, the one thing I never was worried about was that I'm going through this because God's mad at me. Because God's not mad at me. He, he loves me. He is happy with me. I am in Christ. A lot of other awful thoughts going through my head. I thought y'all were all mad at me. Um, I thought every human was mad at me, but I never thought God was. Um, because his anger is taken away forever and ever. And then redemption from the curse of the law, uh, Galatians 3.13. Uh, he, he made it, he, Jesus un, went under the curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who, um, hangs from a tree, Jesus became the curse for us. Why? So that we, what? Let me read this, because it's good, and I just need to have it memorized, and I don't. Um, curse to be everyone who does not abide in all things written. It is evident that no one is justified by God by the law, for before God by the law, for the righteousness by faith. The law is not faith, rather the one who does them should live with them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is written on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Um, that's done. All those things are objective. They're done for us. None of those things depend upon us. And that's, that's important because if, if they did, that we would never have assurance of salvation uh, that they've been done correctly or, or completely. All right. Um, let's look at the two problematic passages. And then um, I took, I went uh, on Facebook last week. I went through John chapter 10 slowly. It was actually really good. Nobody watched it, but it was real good. I kind of got finished with it. I was like, that's actually pretty good. Um, I don't, maybe I should preach that way. I just kind of read each verse and explained it. It was good. I may not have time to do that tonight, today. Um, I don't know what I'm worried about. It's not like you're dying to get out in this rain. <laughs> well, I'll just slow down then. How's that? Let's go through Romans 8 together. What the heck? Well, but it's beautiful. Right? It's so beautiful. It's just gorgeous. And this is the most precious promise. Everybody wants this promise, right? So let's start with verse uh, verse 28. Everybody's, you know, if you're a football player, you write Romans 8, 28 on your face, and you win the game. And we know that for all for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so who is for whom is all things work together working together for good? Those who love God. And then, who are they? He further defines that group. Who are they? They're called according to his purpose. Right. How do we know that they're the ones who are called? Because they... They love God. And does everybody love God? No. Radical corruption. Nobody loves God. Everybody's trying to get away from God. But those who are called according to his purpose come to him anyway. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So these are the ones that he is, he's loved for. He is foreknown. He is always loved. He has had a, an intimate knowledge of forever. He, I mean, that's a precious verse. Don't let that get, you know, watered down by some kind of doctrine of, well, he knew you were going to choose him, so he chose you. That's, that's 
weird and meaningless and it, it's an infinite watering down. He knows you. He's always known that you were going to struggle with drinking too much or struggle with thinking people don't like you or struggle with whatever it is you struggle with. He's always known you. He loves you. He, 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 he has decided that, he, that you are uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's a beautiful thing. Don't, don't let anybody take that from you. He's always known what kind of just shipwreck of a person I was going to be. And he loved me anyway and predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Right. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Right. He's taken away our sin. He's accounted us for righteous. And he has, uh, our glorification is so, it's beautiful whenever you see this written in past tense. Because uh, you kind of look around at yourselves and like, y'all don't look glorified to me. You know, I mean, a glorified body is a perfect body and it's beautiful and it's strong. And no offense, but none of us actually, you know, meets that criteria. But what, this is what we call the prophetic past tense. It's so, it's so sure to have happened that, G, that Paul writes about it in the past tense because it's, it's definitely happening. There's nothing that can stop it. Uh, he is so sure that it's already done. Um, a friend of mine became a pastor of a church that was had a real wonky way of, of being run. Uh, he said they had, a, they had a board that made all the decisions, and the session basically just carried out the wishes of the board, which meant that the board was the session. And um, it was just a mess. And he, uh, his first week he was there, he, uh, he dissolved the board. And the woman who was the chairman of the board uh, came up to him and said, I don't think you can do that. And his response was, and this is his classic Wilson Benton. I wish I knew him. Uh, he said, oh, I think I can. I think I did. I think it's done. <laughs> it's done. Past tense. There's no going back. Um, you, know, you have no, there, There's nothing you can do to mess this up. That's a beautiful, beautiful promise. What then can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you see how beautiful it is that this is just, it's done. You don't have to do anything to add to it. It's complete. Uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised and is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus, God gave his son up for these people. These are the people that Jesus has justified. They can't not be condemned. No one can condemn them. Not even God can condemn them. No one can condemn them because Jesus has already justified them and the, the, their glorification is, is definite. No one can bring any charge against them. Not even you. Not even you. You have no right to bring a charge against yourself. And you need to learn how to talk to yourself that way. And when you start beating yourself up for stuff that's in the past, you need to just learn, uh-uh, no, we ain't going there. That's already been forgiven. We're not. You just got to learn how to put a big old do not enter sign up. And it's like, we're not going down that road. Satan, you're not. You can throw that stuff in my face all you want. It has been justified. I'm glorified. We're not going down that road anymore. Um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present things nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are objective facts. It's not, there's not a big if written over that. If you believe strong enough. If you receive it. It is just an objective fact. This is why you believe it. 
and and he knows you're going to struggle and he came for the doubters that's why every story of post-resurrection appearance of jesus involves doubters because he wants to know i love you too and um and it is for us is it, it is a objective fact there's no big if over it um you see I, so I, you see why i say on one hand i really don't like this argument because i think it's unfair um but on the other hand i do think it's important that you know that this is not dependent on you this is yours don't let anybody take it from you don't let anybody put a big if on it for you um all right let's let's look at uh first john 2 1 and 2 and um because it is problematic and, and you just want to embrace it like okay that's a tough that's a tough one i wish it he, he he doesn't make it clear let's just be fair right my little children i'm writing these things to you that you may not sin if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous he is the propitiation that just means divine sacrifice taking away god's wrath for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, all right. So again, what does that mean and what does it not mean? Um, I've already made clear, I don't think it means every person in the world. If it means every person in the world without exception. Um, if it means every person in the world without exception. Why do I say things like this? I'm about to get myself in trouble. Whatever. Um, and so, doggone it. Never mind. Um, go back to number one there. If we have to choose between Jesus died for all without exception, and we have to complete the work with our faith, or Jesus died for all without exception, and therefore everybody's going to heaven, I'm going with number three every time. Like I'm absolutely sure we don't have to complete this work by our faith. 100% sure of that. I don't believe number three either. Don't get the wrong idea. But if it's number, if I had to choose, which I don't, but if I had to choose, that's where I would go. Um, now, what else could it mean? Um, there are, there's four, at least four different possibilities, and I think they're all true. One is um, just kind of hyperbolic. Pretty much every time in your life you've said the phrase, everybody in the world, you did not mean everybody in the world. Right? Everybody in the world was watching the Super Bowl. Really? Six billion people? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe a hundred million. But not everybody, right? Uh, even uh, John uses this uh, phrase in, uh, about uh, John the Baptist. Everybody in the world has gone to see him. Not everybody. No, nobody believes that means everybody. You get a sense that, okay, it's, it's kind of hyperbolic. It's a big number. In Revelation uh, 4, we're told it's a number. Revelation 8? 4 or 8, we're told that it's a number that no one can count, right? So that's one, one possibility of what he means. I don't think it's just hyperbolic. I think more importantly, he's saying it's not just the Jews. And that is extreme like like that means nothing to you you're like oh, obviously but at this time period it meant a lot that jesus died for the gentiles he died for the entirety of the world not just us jews um and i think that's that's a very important caveat thirdly i think it's important that we understand that the world has a theological meaning to it um what is that meaning? Remember what James says about loving the world? Do not love the world or anything of the world, for he who loves the world is an enmity with God. Um, and and that this is very much kind of in their mind that Jesus died for people who were against him. He died for his enemies. He died for people who were radically corrupted. Worldliness is a setup as, as the opposite of godliness. That's, that's the, the weight of that phrase, God so loved the world. The world hated him, but he loved us, and he could not uh, reject us, and so he gave his son for us. 
And uh, in fourth, the fourth answer, like I said, I think all these are true. Um, is what we call it's, it's an eschatological world, which that means from the end of time. Um, think about it. when John said this, how far had Christianity spread? Ten nations? Eleven? You know, not very far. They didn't have airplanes. They couldn't travel real fast. Didn't have internet. Um, but think about it now. You know, think about how Christianity has spread through Europe, Asia, North America, South America, Africa, um, Asia now, how Christianity is, has become a world religion, unlike any other religion, actually. If you look, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest concentration of Hindus is still uh, in India. The biggest concentration of, of Muslims is still in Arabia. Uh, but the biggest concentration of, Christi- of Christians has been moving throughout history. It started out in Jerusalem, and then it was in Rome, and then it was in Europe, and then it was in America for a while. Uh, now it's in Africa. The biggest concentration of, of Christians is in Nigeria. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's literally, if, if the prophecies of Isaiah are true, and we are moving toward a day when the knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. Then there is a, a, a sense in which one day we're going to look and see an innumerable number from every tribe, tongue, and language. Uh, tribe, tongue, and people. Nation. One of those. Nation, tribe, and tongue. Uh, worshiping Jesus in heaven. It is for the world. The whole world. It's for the whole world. Not without, uh, not without extension, I mean, not without exception, but yes, the, the entirety of the world. Because that's, that is what the gospel is doing. The gospel is winning. The tide is, is coming, uh, in. It's never, it never ceases to come in. It does, you know, comes in like a tide. It recesses and extends and it kind of makes its curves, you know, and sometimes the highest tide will be, if you're ever still on the beach when the tide's coming in, you know, sometimes it comes around you and then sometimes it goes over there and you're like, wow, that's weird. And, you know, people in our culture right now are freaking out and they're all talking about the end of times and it's got to be the end of times. Things just can't get worse than this, which is just a terribly ahistorical point of view. But again, you know, if you're white and you live in the suburbs, it's easy to think that. Um, If you're African-American, you're like, no, things are definitely better now than they were in 1863. I promise. So, you know, I get it, though. that's just part of life. Um, but yeah, the, the tide is definitely recessing in America. The last eight or so years for Christ- have been bad years for Christianity in America. We can all embrace that and be very thankful that our particular church seem, seems to have survived it. So, um, But that does not mean that Christianity is taking a beating. Christianity in South America is doing great. Christianity in Asia, we have no idea how good it's going. We have no idea because they won't tell us but it annoys them. Um, and there's tens of millions of Christians in China at the very least. The number's probably way above that. So the gospels, we're going to look, we're, the day is coming when we'll say that Jesus died to save the world. 